it's more ordinary for me to be stuck than to be in flow. You know, it's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about talking about work and talking about the thing you're working on and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I had heard a writer say once that they never talk about it because part of the reward of having written is being able to finally share it and talk about it. And if you give yourself that reward prematurely, you're less motivated to complete the work. And I think there might be something like that for me, which is to say that I totally relate to you thinking maybe I'll just podcast forever. Like, well, I write a book like this is so satisfying. And this right now is so satisfying for me. Like I could do this all day long and way more satisfying than writing. I'm only glad to have written. I'm almost never happy when writing. That's Kelly Corrigan. And this is The Ritual Podcast. The Ritual Podcast. Hey, people, what's the latest? How is your September going? Are you settling into your fall routine? Either way, happy to have you here. Welcome or welcome back to the podcast. My name is Rich Roll and I am your host. Today, we're gonna talk about love, we're gonna talk about connection, the pain of life, relationships, and the power of storytelling with the captivating, the singular, and very charming, I might add, Kelly Corrigan. Called the voice of her generation by Oprah Magazine and the poet laureate of the ordinary by HuffPost, Kelly Corrigan is many, many things, but she's best known for her very personal voice as a writer capturing real life, the ordinary, the mundanity of day-to-day living with a warmth, a courage, a candid honesty, uh, and a a vulnerability and poetic beauty that makes her many books beloved by millions. She is the author of a slew of New York Times bestsellers, including The Middle Place, Lift, Glitter and Glue, and her most recent offering, Tell Me More, which was named one of the best books of the year by Real Simple and Bustle. It's this deeply personal, honest, and very funny story-driven collection of essays on the 12 powerful phrases we use to sustain our relationships and make love and connection possible. Kelly is a regular on the Today Show. She's been profiled and featured everywhere. And our conversation is coming up in a couple few. But first. Okay, Kelly, Kelly Gorgon. So I first met Kelly about this time last year when I attended the Nantucket Project. This is the latest in uh, my ongoing series of guests that originate from that amazing experience. Kelly, in addition to being this extraordinary author, also serves as the creative director of the Nantucket Project and sort of the right hand to Nantucket Project founder, Tom Scott, who you may recall from the podcast, episode 360. Check that out if you missed it, Uh, which I will again be attending this very week, as a matter of fact, very excited about it. In any event, I was quite taken with Kelly, watching her host a variety of amazing conversations that weekend. Uh, I started delving into her books. I knew she would make an amazing guest on the show and uh, she definitely delivers. So this is a wide ranging conversation that begins with Kelly's writing career and working with the Nantucket Project before pivoting into a broader conversation about 
Kelly's books and her insights and her observations into how we relate to the people in our lives, from our loved ones, to our children, to our neighbors. Uh, it's about finding beauty and poetry in the simple things. And why saying things like, I don't know, or no, or I was wrong, or tell me more, provide the bedrock for better understanding, empathy, and intimacy. Super fun conversation. So without further ado, let's get into it. This is me and Kelly Corrigan. Hi, Kelly. Hi. Thank you for coming all the way out here. I wanted to first talk about, there was just a, like a big uh, Nantucket project event in Port Chester, right? Yes. Yeah, how did Last that go? Tuesday. It looked like amazing. It was beautiful. It's in the Capitol Theater. So typically we do our events in the round. Uh-huh. And this was on a stage looking out. So it's very different. The vibe was very different. And I think that we decided at the end of the night that we really prefer to be in the round, that there's something participatory about that that you can't have when mm -hmm. you're on a stage. And then also being on a stage like that can sometimes um, trigger a performative element that isn't ideal for what we're trying to do. Right. Most people that we put on stage that night avoided that, but there was one, um, one part of the evening got very um, like a show. Yeah. And we're trying super hard not to be a show. Well, it's hard when you scale it up and you have that many people yeah. in attendance, right? Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, uh, music always works. So we had the Harlem Gospel Choir. Uh huh. And uh, we also had Renee Robinson, who's an Alvin Ailey dancer, and she got the audience up and taught them this set of moves. And then the kind of big reveal was that it was set to Hello by Adele. Uh huh. And all of a sudden we were dancing like, like on point. Everybody in the audience? Everybody in the audience. Wow. A thousand people. That's cool. Awesome. She she is one of those terrifically charismatic people. I mean, I would say that in the last five years, the single most charismatic person I've ever met wow. is Renee Robinson. I feel like I need to get her on the podcast. You do. You do. She's got it. Whatever it is. And and her she's um a hundred percent charisma for good. Mm -hmm. As uh, which is not always true of the the deeply charismatic, like it sometimes turns for the worst, and you find that they're enjoying their power uh, in ways that are unhealthy. But she's truly—I don't even know if she's aware of how charismatic she how is. How do you and Tom like find these people, these gems? Uh, the, well, now, so this will be the ninth year of the Nantucket Project. That means that we have been in front of you know, I'm gonna say 10,000 people, maybe even more right. over nine years. So some percentage of those people uh, take it upon themselves to reach out with suggestions. And that's that's how the funnel gets filled. Mm -hmm. And then there's some vetting that goes on and then you hear about someone from three different people and that makes you wanna go meet them and yeah. then uh, it trickles down from there. I'm in a similar situation. I'm on the receiving end of a lot of, you know, suggested guests and, the vetting process for me or the litmus test really is is a, is a guttural thing. Like it's instinctual. Like, do I resonate with this? Like sometimes, you know, multiple people will say you should have this person on, but I'm not feeling it. And then I do it anyway. And that's eh, not quite right. Like I have to really, it's like an unknowing sort of 
thing that mm-hmm. clicks and I'm like, oh yeah, this person is right. And what's interesting about Nantucket is a lot of these people, like a bunch of these people are people I've never heard of. You know, they're not, they're not like necessarily like people that are in mainstream consciousness or maybe they're kind of teetering on, you know, tapping into that. But um, it's always like, it's so well curated. Um, and I, I it, it, you know, I have yet to see somebody that strikes a false note. Well, so it's interesting. It's a four day ideas festival on Nantucket in September. And we, we end up with about 40 people on stage and we have sort of this rule of thumb that seven of them should be household names. Uh-huh. So that's Hope Solo and George W. Bush and Laura Dern. Right. And it seems like that's just enough to give the uninitiated confidence mm-hmm. that it's gonna be worth their four days. Right. Uh, and then the real joy of it is to find these unknown people. And in fact, I was an unknown person. Like that's how right. I came into the Nantucket Project is that I was asked to speak because Tom had been told by a couple different people that they had seen me do my thing and that they really liked it. And so he came out and took me to lunch in San Francisco at some Vietnamese place. And he said, uh, I want you to come to Nantucket and I want you to give the talk of your life. Uh-huh. And to be totally honest, <laughs> I was completely offended. <laughs> Why? Uh, I thought it was so outrageous. Uh, what an outrageous assignment for somebody who I had known for you know 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I'd never heard of the Nantucket Project. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not, it's not Ted. Yeah. It's it's a different thing. And so anyway, I but it but it got under my skin like that idea. Like it was an outrageous thing to say to someone and also I suppose for the right person totally irresistible. Uh-huh. And that became this challenge. And, and it really was. The talk I gave was literally the talk of my life. Yeah. It was the best talk I ever gave. It was the hardest I ever worked on anything. It won the audience award and that Began our relationship, and we're five years in now. Yeah. So, so how did you go from that to becoming the creative director? I I came back the following year and interviewed a couple people. I interviewed Julie Taymor, who did Lion King on Broadway, mm-hmm. and I interviewed a wonderful uh, young athlete who had been in and out of jail named Maurice Claret. He was like the number one draft pick in the country out of Ohio State, and then he ended up going to jail. Um, and he tells an incredible story that involves Warren Buffett and. It's a great, he, he's an amazing guy, actually. He'd be really cool for you to mm. talk to. Um, mighty struggles, mm. mighty struggles. And then the following year, I came back and talked to some more people. And then at some point, Tom said, I want to hire you. And I said, well, isn't your company in Connecticut? Because I live in Oakland, <laughs> California. And, and by the said, way, I well, write books. Yeah, I, I do have this other job. Yeah. I'm like five books into this thing. And... Um, and he said, we'll work it out. Uh-huh. And, and, and he's a person who's very similar to you where he's operating almost entirely on gut yeah. and is very, very careful, uh, very carefully tuned to his gut. And he just can't do it. If he doesn't have it, if he doesn't have the good feeling, he just cannot do it. He works in mysterious ways, that guy. He works in mysterious ways, he <laughs> yes. does. I'm way more linear. Yeah. Um, cryptic in certain respects, but the equation works. And I've said this before, but like I've I've known Tom and Neil Phillips since like I was 14 years old. I I went to school with those guys. And I had a kind of checkered experience at that phase of my life. But being at at Nantucket Project was really 
healing for me to like reconnect with them and mm -hmm. to see like the amazing work that both of those guys are doing. And then some of my classmates also from that period of time were there in attendance. And I just, it was magical for me. And, you know, I've spoke at a lot of different events and conferences and um, there was something uh, radically different about Nantucket um, that I can't quite put my finger on it on, but I think it has something to do with, um, just the the heart and the integrity that mm -hmm. you know Tom really sets the tone with that and the level of engagement by everybody who attends yes and and the the kind of immersive experience that the speakers all have like usually people fly in they do their thing they leave but everybody stayed the whole time they attended all the all the mm -hmm. sessions and everybody left that experience transformed. I think that my favorite thing, you're touching on like all my favorite things about TMP. One is I do think that it's funny and awesome that like two six foot four guys who went to college to play football uh -huh. are in this like love centric business together. I know. Just I trying to like, right? Thought that. I mean, it's you, incredible. you know, one of them went to Harvard and one of them went to Brown and I'm sure they were like BMOCs and, I don't know how many people whose lives begin on that note end up where those two have ended up, but their whole, you know, their whole raison d'etre is to help people connect with other people in meaningful ways over meaningful topics. Yeah, I, I would have never predicted it in a million years. I mean, to be sure, both of those guys were were definitely like the most popular guys, the best athletes, but they were never. Yes, they were jocks, but they were never like bullies or they didn't have that kind of bro attitude about mm -hmm. them. They, you know, they were much more mature and kind yeah. um, than kind of the stereotype of that. But still like it's a, you know, the, 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 the terrain that they traverse to be these kind of people that are carrying, you know, such a resonance for so many others is kind of a remarkable thing. The other thing you mentioned that is really important to me about the experience of TMP is that it's super collegial. And so the very things you noted, like people don't come and go. Once you come and you give your talk, you stay. Mm -hmm. You're Because we're all under a tent in a circle, you can see everybody all the time. You can go sit next to them if you want. Yeah. Um, and so there's not this kind of big dog because there's no backstage and there's no green room. And that's a literally true and also kind of like figuratively true. Like there isn't- A separation. It's not like, ta-da, here mm -hmm. comes rich roll, mm -hmm. you, you know? You just come up out of the audience and talk for a little bit and then you go back into the audience yeah. because everybody's learning and everybody's working it out together. Um, and then this kind of eyes up, hands out uh, mentality that that audience has. Like I never have made- so many contacts in four days. And contacts makes it sound like I'm building my professional network. I don't have a professional network, like I'm just a writer. <laughs> but um, but the, I mean, when I, like I hug 50 people a day at Nantucket Project mm. and like leaving there, it, you are, you're a little bit different. And I don't know where else people can get that. Yeah, I think that's very true. And I think we're, we're starving for that kind of connection. Well, the, that's the beauty of Neighborhood Project which is this, this very clever way that uh, Tom and crew have come up with to share the TMP experience more broadly. Cause mm -hmm. Nantucket's really far away for most people and it's expensive and it's hard to get to. And so you, and you have all this, all these takeaways, all this learning, all this content. You have speakers who have given really remarkable talks about ideas you haven't heard before. And then you also have all these short films that we make. So we make tons of 
five to 10 minute films. Right. And so if you can put some of that together and, and then share it with people broadly and they can watch it in their living room together with other people, and then they have set aside two hours to talk about it, that's remarkable. So to me, the biggest, biggest win for TMP is this neighborhood project thing, like getting it out into the hands of many and it's totally free. How many of those are currently up and running? I think there are 70. Mm. And um, I think we're in 26 or 27 states. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's real. I went to, I went to one at- You did? Greg Renfrew's sure. house and Mark. And Mark. Um, it was really cool. It reminded me kind of like, it was kind of like an AA meeting. Mm. <laughs> you watch these movies and then everybody's vulnerable and sharing their reactions yeah. and their experiences. And it was cool. I really enjoyed it. I think of it as like somewhere at any given session, right? Cause there's eight episodes, if you will, in this first season mm -hmm. and in any given uh, uh, meeting of those groups, cause I'm in two, I'm in one here in Southern California and then I'm one, one up in my neighborhood at home. Uh, it's, it can be like a grad school seminar where we're talking about AI and the future and uh, how our kids are dealing with things in a different way than we are and, and approaching problems and problem solving in a different way, the things we never would have thought of, how that makes us feel. Do we uh -huh. feel like old ladies who are incapable of participating in the world because it's moving so fast and we can barely get our printer to work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's super heartfelt stuff like about forgiveness and figuring mm. out um, how to do that again and again and again and again mm -hmm. as life requires. Mm. Um, so it's sort of a continuum of like anything from, uh, as you say, like a, a meeting where people are trying to solve a very urgent problem to um, a more intellectual experience where you're right. toying with an idea because it's been put in front of you and you haven't really had the chance to think about it and talk about it in long form yet. And what is the, the goal of these neighborhood projects. It's so like what funny. are you what are you aiming for with this? Meaningful connection to others. Mm. That's it. That's it. Yeah. And it's really funny because I don't think anyone believes us. Truly. W what is the hidden agenda? Right. <laughs> I honestly, I really don't think it's sufficient uh -huh. for most people to say, I don't know, it's like just for the good of the order. Like this is what we believe will make people's lives better. Yeah. And is that enough? Like, it's sort of funny. I can feel people waiting for like, yeah, but. Right. What, what is this really about? And it's really about really putting about people together in a room and like letting them connect over a meaningful topics. Well, we need some kind of ceremony or excuse to do that. Like despite, that you know, sad? the technology that we're all carrying around these days, we really are more isolated than we ever have been. And, you know, we don't, go next door and knock on the door and ask for sugar. And we don't know our name. I mean, lots of people do, but like, you know, we live, you know, in an area where like, I really don't know the people mm -hmm. that live around me. And, and short of some think, reason to, yeah. for us to get together, like it's not going to happen. Well, the uh, thing I think is I don't even know the people I know. Hmm. So there's a lot of people in my neighborhood project in Oakland who I would have told you, I know them. And then we get in there and they start telling me that they're the only person in their family who continually forgives. This was one woman said, I'm the only person in my family who still forgives my brother. He's an active alcoholic and everyone else has walked and I'm the only person who's staying and everyone's mad at me because I'm stopping him, quote unquote, from mm -hmm. reaching rock bottom. 
But she said, but I can't, I can't leave him alone. Mm -hmm. If I leave him, it's over. I have no idea what I'll do, but I'm the only person. So I thought I knew her. Yeah. Because I had stood on some sidelines with her over the years. And like we did a back to school coffee for the teachers. Like that's what I I thought I knew her. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, there's knowing and there's knowing. And then to provide like a a crucible, like an environment that's safe for people to relate on that kind of vulnerable level is is a special thing. Yeah. Uh, Yes, and it's um, terribly absent, terribly absent. Because when I do it, I do it once a month in my town, I think... Even though I'm kind of in this business, like I'm professionally attached to a thing that does this, this is still the only two hours in the month that I am being in this way. Right. That the parts of me are turned on in a way that they are not turned on. Like gears are turning that do not turn, but for that conversation. This is why I think everybody should be in 12-step programs because as somebody who's been, you know, a member of that for a very long time, like I'm acclimated, I'm used to going into groups where a whole bunch of people sit down and, you know, tell the horrible truths of their lives and bear their souls and are open and vulnerable and are willing to not only put that out, but also accept help. And it's such a marvelous, remarkable dynamic mm-hmm. that I think everybody could benefit from on some level, irrespective of whatever you know problems you may or may not have in your life. I know. I, I mean, I, I think I probably agree with you. Yeah. I'm not in a 12-step program, but I do, um, I mean, I love love. I love to be like in the experience of it. And that's what it feels like mm-hmm. to be in there. Well, let's talk about how you infuse your writing with that mm. sensibility. Mm. You know, because a lot of your a lot of your work is about that, and it's you know you've been you have you've been called these things like the voice of your generation by da, Oprah da, and HuffPo's poet poet laureate of the ordinary. Like, how does yeah. that make you feel when you hear those? <laughs> those Pretty things? good. Those are very lofty statements. I, I loved you know? poet laureate of the ordinary. It's very I loved cool. that because I did feel initially self conscious. I mean, uh, ten years ago, the middle place came out, which was my mm-hmm. first book. It was this book about my dad and I both had cancer yeah. at the same time. And my mom, after she read it, said, "Well, Kelly, you know, it's very good. I mean, I did not find any spelling mistakes, and your grammar <laughs> is perfect." And I was like, "Yeah, mom, but like, what about the stories? Like, did you feel anything <laughs> yeah. when you were reading it?" And she said, "Well, I did, but I just kept wondering, like, who wants to read about us? Like, uh-huh. we're not rich, we're not poor, we're not." you know, big family, we're not a small family, you know? And I said, I don't know. I don't know who wants to read about us. It's my biggest fear is that it's too ordinary. And, and then people wanted to read about us. Yeah. And I, so when that came out, when the Huffington Post said that, I thought, oh, that's really validating in a way Uh that it's okay to just tell your very ordinary stories about your very ordinary life. Like I don't have, you have an extraordinary life. You, Ritual, have an extraordinary life. I do not. I have a really run-of-the-mill, right-up-the-middle kind of life. But you do, too. Let's be honest. You live a pretty cool life. Oh, it's very cool. I love my life. But it's not, in terms of, like, let's say that we were in a room together. We were back-to-back meetings at Random House. And you went in and you said, well, I'm an extreme athlete. I'm an addict. I'm a vegan. Uh, You know, I've experienced this, this, and this. Uh And then I came in after you and said, I'm a mom. I have uh, two kids. I live in a house with my husband. I uh, make dinner four times a week. The rest of the time we get takeout. 
Which yeah, one where, of us do you want to hear more where's of? Where's the hook? Yeah. What's, the, what's the big takeaway? Well, I mean, I think that that speaks loudly about your, you know, your beautiful ability to translate the human experience and all its mundanity into something that we can all connect with and relate to. Like there's this sense that, you know, you have to be Hemingway in order to, you know, write about your life. Like what are the crazy adventures that you've gone on? But in truth, like your books, I mean, it's like what, every book hits number two on the New York Times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> every it's book like number crazy. two, never number one. I know, what's going on with that? I don't know. It was with um, Middle Place, it was three cups of tea. Uh-huh. It was just sitting there forever. Right. I couldn't get past it. And then another one, it was like the former Secretary of State's book was sitting on top of mine. Sometimes you just can't get but past it. But it's generally it. like all these famous people and CEOs and stuff like that, right? That it are, is. That I remember when, when the book, the first book was on the bestseller list, showing it to my dad and saying, okay, so you know who's on this list? An NFL coach. Two former presidents, former secretary of state, a newscaster, like Tom Brokaw was on the uh-huh. list at that time. Jack Welch was on the list at that time. And I said, and you, Greeny, right, you're Greeny. on that list. And what was his response to that? Lobby, yeah. lobby, is this great? <laughs> is this a crack up? Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's beautiful that you can, you get to, through your honesty and your vulnerability and your amazing ability to kind of you know, find and mine the meaning in our daily lives and translate that in a way where where the reader can really, it just resonates with people. They see themselves in your writing, they can identify with that. And I think it makes them feel like their lives have meaning too. They don't have to be Hemingway. The nicest thing that people ever say is exactly, exactly. That's exactly right. it. I, uh-huh. I have I have been around the edges of that feeling and I have lived that moment before and I've never been able to articulate it, but I've had this deep sense that it was important, that it was like mm. a, uh, that, you know, it was a turning point or it was a pivot point in my life and you said it exactly. I watched your uh, video transcending oh, the other day. You did, um, which is you reading this article before a group well, of say, yeah. gr- group of women. Um, that's essentially just about what it's like to be a woman, a, a mom. Yeah. you know, basically the typical kind of suburban experience. Yeah. And not only did you get choked up at the end, but like all these women were just like, they were all, you could, they weren't saying it out loud, but they're all going exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. Well, the, the, the thing about that essay, I'd written it for my 40th birthday. Uh, and the idea was that there, there are these, um, this constant flow of deposits that we're making in each other's lives that allow us to catch each other on the worst day. So it's, let's mm. say I'm in your life for 10 years and I'm dropping your kid off at school for you and then you're running my kid home from soccer and then I share my leftovers with you and then I pop over the day you sprain your ankle and then you come over the day my husband gets fired and, and life keeps doing what life does and we're staying with each other, we're holding on to each other and then something really happens then there's some tragedy. Mm -hmm. The only reason why I can be there for you, that I can comfort you in that moment is because we've been on this road together. So that was the turning point of that idea was that there's, um, you know, a thousand minuscule 
deposits that build this foundation that we could stand on the day the worst thing happens, mm-hmm. the day you lose your kid, the day you lose your husband. But we tend to focus on those monumental occurrences and glance over the minutia, but your work is really about lasering in on, on those little moments and realizing that that's really where life takes place. My favorite line that I ever wrote in all these books is the last line of Tell Me More. Um, and it's, uh, you're a profoundly ordinary kid is singing in the shower and you get to be here to hear it. Yeah. And in the context of that book, which was written in the wake of losing my dad and then losing my good friend Liz and giving a eulogy in front of her three kids, eight, 10, and 12, um, and then going home and, and having my kids get in a big fight at the dinner table and then my daughter kind of storming off and then she was in the shower and then I heard something and then I went upstairs and then I kind of leaned my ear against the door and I heard all the single ladies, all the single ladies. Mm. And it was like, I get to be here. They're, like I get to listen to this kid sing in the shower and whatever that means for you, that's what it means. But for mm. me, it was like, head to toe chills. Like I was so hyper aware, you know, how you are after a loss and it fades. And that's partly what Tell Me More is about too, is like how difficult it is to kind of hold that clarity and live in that space and not return to your normal crappy self who's pissed off about gaining weight or getting a parking ticket. Um, But that moment of standing outside that door was like, Liz will not have this moment. She will not get this moment. She will not listen to her 15-year-old singing Beyonce in the shower. Mm -hmm. And I'm here. And to be able to be present and aware of the import of that, Mm -hmm. which is such a fleeting thing. It's so difficult for us as human beings Mm -hmm. to hold on to that Mm -hmm. truth, right? Mm -hmm. And, And that is what the book is about. It's sort of like you... Um, you know, navigating the aftermath of of your father and your friend passing away, and and grappling with um, your frustration, or perhaps on some level shame for not being able to kind of you know maintain that level of gratitude throughout, like mm-hmm. constantly having to remind yourself, but defaulting to just the daily grind. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. So the the book is built around these 12 things that I feel like we have to be able to say to one another and to ourselves to be adults in the world, to be in permanent relationship. And the first one is the most unusual and it's this thing that this mindfulness guy taught me. So Uh I was working at my husband's, I was writing at my husband's uh, startup, it's called Medium. And it's a total class. Is Medium still a startup? Nah, I guess it's still going, it's (laughs) still going, it's still going. So Ev Williams, who yeah. started it, is, and you know, would let me come and and write there. He's very generous and opened the doors to to writers in the area. And um, so I would come, and you know, it was like total classic San Francisco startup, like uh, kombucha bar, meatless Mondays, nap pods, mm. which I'm pretty sure yeah. is like where the millennials are getting it yeah, on. Yeah. Um, and then they had this <laughs> mindfulness guy, his name's Will Kabat-Zinn, who would be an amazing guest for you. Mm. He's John Kabat-Zinn's son, right, yeah. who wrote, uh, wherever you go, there you are. And um, so anyway, he would lead these sessions. So I just like plopped in there right next to Ev as if I was like a real employee. And this guy did this little talk before we meditated about, it's like this. And... I didn't totally know what he meant, but I felt like it resonated on that level that like a song lyric might 
resonate where you wouldn't even want to parse it. You just want to like sit with it and hold it and put it in your wallet. And um, so I kept thinking about it. And then I actually ended up in a long conversation with them. And I said, you know, I have these moments where I totally lose track of what matters. And I have, and I have these moments where it's crystal clear and they're so precious and I want to hold them and I can't. And he said, it's like this. Mm. And he said, when do you lose track? And I said, well, here's an ordinary Monday morning at our house. So I have these two kids and a husband and they are eating breakfast at the table and then they're very busy people. And so they um, don't have time to put the dishes in the sink but I do. So I take the dishes over and I'm already like starting to feel steamed about that. And then they're gone. And then I go back to the kitchen table where I serve this like organic food that I buy at a grocery store that really irritates me. And on the kitchen table is a little teeny pile of cut toenails. Uh-huh. And that just took me over the edge. The indignity. The indignity. I mean, do you have cut toenails? Like, have you ever cleaned up somebody's cut toenails? Oh, I've, everything. Has everybody yeah. cleaned up somebody's cut toenails? Is that what I don't understand about that? Um, well, it's just it's just the idea, you know, look, kids at a certain age, it's just, they just, they just do what they do and then they walk away, yeah. right? And the implicit message as the parent is always like, oh, okay, so I'm here, I'm the one who's supposed to clean all this up, right? right. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Like, right. it's like a daily thing. Yeah. And then, but the only way out, of course, is to realize that it's like this, mm-hmm. like that there are that, and and if you don't mind, I'll just read the end of this yeah, please. chapter because um, because what I was feeling was that well, well, after the cut toenail thing, then I this UPS guy came who is like aggressively fit, like you fit, and I am not fit, and I do not exercise, and I do hope that. During this conversation today, you can persuade me to <laughs> we'll like get you there. turn over a new leaf. I think you're doing fine. Oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. I'm going to age so badly. Anyway, put a pin in that. So anyway, the guy comes and he gives me this little envelope, and it's from J. Crew. And then I remember that I bought this T-shirt, this little um, linen top. And then I realized that like linen has no stretch in it. There's no lycra, but there's mm-hmm. lycra in almost everything else. So I don't really know what size I am anymore. You know, because Maybe I'm a six, but maybe I'm a 12 because right. I've been wearing stretchy clothes for like 15 years Well, there's years the now. size we tell people that we are and yeah. then there's the real size that we are. Yeah, your driver's license weight, mm, right. so to speak. So anyway, I go upstairs, I put this shirt on and then I can't, I literally can't get it off and I have to cut it off with scissors. So I'm, I'm fit to be tied. <laughs> I'm like staring at myself in my new <gasps> stupid vest mm. in the mirror and um, I relax my face, I exhale, I console my reflection. It's like this, Kelly. This is how it goes. Hidden in the morning's frustrations, like a rattlesnake in the woodpile, is something else. I close my eyes so I can listen for the other thing, the further away, much worse thing, in the quiet of my own head. Life ends. I've known this since the summer of 1972, when an ambulance drove away in silence with the old lady down the street who gave out almond joys on Halloween. But now I've seen mortality do its awful ghosting, up close, twice. And that has changed the context of everything. In the new Zodiac, without Greeny, my dad, without Liz, all terms have been recalibrated. Pain is agony. Bad is fatal. The scale is reset, making it hard for me to reconcile what I've seen with how I live. 
Liz would have done a week of aggressive bromodomain inhibitors at Cedars-Sinai for one morning of hairballs, eggshells, and toenail clippings. To see her kids become teenagers screaming obscenities at each other in the hall, she'd have given up every organ in her pelvic cavity. Then there's Greeny, who would have told you that life was a carnival, all music and snack stalls, fortune tellers, and strong men. It's magical, lovey. Edward, my husband, called Greeny a happiness genius, but ask anyone. He was as excited about being alive as anyone you will ever meet. This isn't just a kid making a hero out of her dad. And me, I walked next to him in that festival light for almost 50 years, and then one night in February, his hand went still in mine, and here I am, same as ever, except quicker to anger and 13 pounds heavier. Shouldn't loss change a person for the better, forever? Maybe Will's curious phrase, it's like this, applies here too. This forgetting, this slide into smallness, this irritability and shame, this disorienting grief, it's like this. Minds don't rest. They reel and wander and fixate and roll back and reconsider because it's like this, having a mind. Hearts don't idle. They swell and constrict and break and forgive and behold because it's like this, having a heart. Lives don't last. They thrill and confound and circle and overflow and disappear because it's like this, having a life. Beautiful. There's so much in there. I know. Talk about. I know. But that acceptance that, that you are not going to be able to hold it. Right. That's huge. That well, it's freedom and it me. releases you from that pressure that you feel or that guilt that you harbor that you're supposed to be other than what you are. Yes, and the self-loathing that comes yeah. with it because it is really astonishing to stand in front of a congregation of people and give a eulogy for a young person and then ever be mad again does not seem to go together. Like right. I guess I had sky-high expectations that I would forever consistently and constantly be different. And you're not. You're not. And it's that's so, weird. It feels like you're dishonoring this memory of this person. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's 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 sort of uh a comfort to hear that it's just like this and yet it leaves me wondering, well why does it have to be this way? Like why are we why is the human mind soul spirit wired in that way like wh- how is it possible that you know 2 hours after some life changing experience you could get into a road rage or you know distract yourself with you know some small indignity and then beat yourself up for it to make it even worse so i blame our neurobiology like i and by that i mean the way that we have evolved as a species to survive under the circumstances as they've changed over thousands of years. And I think it's astonishing uh, the levels at which we are operating at any given moment. Like I could be having this very deep conversation with you at the same time that I'm thinking, I would like to floss my teeth. Uh I would like to drink this water in front of me, but I don't wanna make any noise. Uh I hope that reading wasn't too long for Rich. I wonder if other authors do readings on here or whether I just totally bugged him. Like I can hold in my head and in my heart simultaneously, I'm gonna say two dozen different discrete thoughts 
that are operating at different discrete levels. Uh-huh. That's really something to marvel at and accept as the truth of our machine. Like this is what our machine does. This is how the machine works. And as much as we can intellectually understand that, it's still the root of our suffering. Yes. Well, you can then, take a drink. You can thank take, you. I'm taking a, a drink, drink now. I hope it doesn't make a horrible sound. <laughs> no. Did you all hear that? I'm sorry. No. Um, oh, you heard that. I bet that was my tummy. I thought uh, it was mine. Uh, um, right, right. I think about suffering a lot. That word is so dramatic and so apt. I mean, I'm not questioning it uh, in any way, but it is incredible to me that that is the nature of reality Mm -hmm. for most people across time and across culture. We also don't calibrate it very well. Like the suffering that we experience when, you know, our child does something that irritates us, isn't that different from the emotional experience of something that really is grave and substantial. Yes. Well, I think when I think about, um, you know, my 2 a.m. brain, like what I'm cycling on in the middle of the night, it always reveals um, what a ninny I am. Because I honestly, during the day, I'm thinking way bigger thoughts than what's happening at 2 a.m. At 2 a.m., I'm like, for instance, last night, I couldn't sleep. And it wasn't for, quote unquote, the right reasons. It wasn't because I was coming here and I wanted to make sure that I was prepared and anything of import or that I I didn't really kill it on my brother's birthday yesterday and maybe Mm. I should have sent him something. It was that my daughter is running a craft camp out of my house next week. And I wondered if... I had made it clear that they are not allowed to paint in the house, uh-huh. that there should be a dry area <laughs> and a wet area. That's uh-huh. where I was at 2 a.m. Nowhere bigger, nowhere more poetic or profound, just in this total quotidian space. And I just wonder, like, what does that mean? What does that mean about me or us? Or do you have to find meaning in that? Right? Like, mm-hmm. it's just like that. Mm-hmm. Right, you know? right. Why can't you just leave it there? Right. Why do you have to engage with it? I mean, that's mindfulness, right? It's just to, I think, is to take, you should tell me, of course, but it's just to take a step back from it and, and watch it float by like a little boat on some water. If you can be neutral. Yeah, not that I'm any expert in mindfulness, but I think that- You're not? That's the, why I'm here. <laughs> is that why you're here? Well, yeah. sorry to disappoint you. Okay, so I want you to make me lose weight. <laughs> yeah, I want you to no. make me eat better and I want wow. you to make me more mindful. Oh That's my, my agenda. That's it is now order. unhidden. Really? Yeah. All right. Well, uh, maybe that's another podcast. Okay. <laughs> Today's about you. Can we have the conversion podcast where you get me righted? I don't think you need to be righted. You don't? No. Mm. Maybe you need to release your, uh, your, your whatever pressure you're putting on yourself to be righted. I think you're pretty right. Mm. Mm. I wish I was, um, had more uh, healthy routines. Yeah, what's holding you back from that? Love of pajamas. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Deep, deep you don't have love to give of that pajamas. Up. You don't have to give, <laughs> Like there's just, you know, I mean, I bet it's true for many people that there the window, I mean, the ideal window is the morning, right? I think. There's for a me moment it is. 
for like me, when, it once is. I've had coffee number two, I'm a, I'm a two and out each day. Uh-huh. There's a window there where I am at my sort of strongest intellectual capacity. And I cannot imagine trading that out for exercise, but that's yeah. also the moment to exercise. Cause really once you get to 11, for whatever reason, you're just not gonna it's do it. It's over with, yeah. It's over. Well, if it makes you feel better, I, I have this same dilemma. Oh, good. Because my creative capacities are at their best early in the morning, but that's also when I feel like I wanna train. And I think in retrospect, looking back over the last several years, um, I think that I've created this whole podcast as a distraction to conveniently opt out of having to write another book. You know like, what? I really think I really think that like writing is probably my strength and I'm so terrified of it that I will do anything. I'll train for some crazy ultra race or I will spend 6 years interviewing people just so I don't have to be with myself and the written page. I totally 100% believe you. Like, I think this is such a common thing. I mean, yeah. I think Malcolm Gladwell and Michael Lewis and all these other big time writers who people want the next book from are, are, would also say that this is the most elaborate procrastination scheme yeah. man has ever invented. Oh, and I have the all these podcast. arguments to support it too. Yeah. Because I can reach more people instantly by doing this sure. than two years of work on a book. I agree. You know, so. What are you, what so then are you why really do you have here? to write a book? Do I have to write another book? I don't know. According no, to Random should, House, I do. Yeah. There's a I contract. I mean, have to, what does that Money mean? Money has been accepted <laughs> yeah. and spent. Oh, people get out of those things all yeah. the time. Great. You are cracking a new book right now though, aren't you? I am and I thought- I saw thought a social I, media post about that. Yeah, I thought, well, that's the kiss of death. Uh-huh. You know, if you're like now um, you're on the hook. using social media to talk about your book that you're definitely that's not bad. writing your book. <laughs> Just, yeah. you're trying to get your hit early. Uh-huh. Like you're not supposed to be able to celebrate and like, you know, cross the tape mm. with and get your high fives until you actually have finished your book. Mm-hmm. But when you, so then you put something out on social media so you can get some quick hits of like, you're doing it, congratulations. Right. And, and it's then you all- you feel like you've actually done something when right, you haven't done anything. You, you so, got all the accolade, you got all the good, you know, vibes yeah. without doing the work. So I had written, I don't know, I'm gonna say 38,000 words. So a normal book maybe is 50 or 60,000 mm. words. And um, I don't know, I, I had this delusional sense that maybe it was gonna be one of those like perfect little books that can be really powerful for people like When Breath Becomes Air or even About Alice, which is the Calvin uh-huh. Trillin book that's my favorite, favorite uh, example of how powerful a small book can be. and. So I, I put it all on social media and I sent it off to Andy Ward at Random House, who's my editor. And then I went to, happened to be in New York the following week and I went to see him and he said, it's good, it's good. I mean, I'm gonna say you're halfway. Mm. And I mean, I just deflated like a balloon. <laughs> I was like halfway, just say 70, just lie. Just say, I can't go back to work with halfway. If you had said 70, I'd been working on it this afternoon. Uh-huh. You say 50, I'm thinking maybe I'm gonna give the money back. Like it was so discouraging. I didn't say any of that. It was just oh, that was my own mind. like internal right. dialogue. I just nodded and tried to act like a mature writer who could handle that kind of right. honest feedback. <laughs> but my little like eight-year-old inside was like, I wanted to be more. Where do you get the 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 gumption to be so open and honest and vulnerable? 
in your writing. And he, even so like here. I think that. You're very um, free with it. Oh, um, well, uh, it's my nature. So it's not like an achievement of any type. It's not like I was one way and then I understood something and then uh-huh. I became another way. It's just sort of how I came out. But a thing that really, really affected me was population numbers. So I remember I went traveling when I was 25 for a year with my uh, best friend from college, Tracy Tuttle. And she teased me because one of the things in my fanny pack was this little book of world population numbers. And everywhere we went, I wanted to know how many people live in Bangkok, how many people live in Thailand, how many people live in Sydney, how many people live in Australia. And the idea, like the idea of how many people there are was super freeing for me. Like it was crystal clear and continues to be that it does not matter one iota what I do or what becomes of me. Because there's just so many people. There's like, just how so could it many possibly, people. Yeah. There's so many people. I mean, there's even so many people who write books. Mm. There's even so many podcasts, much less like actual people on the planet. Pretty soon there's gonna be as many podcasts as there are people. Yeah. But go ahead. Right? <laughs> yeah. So I used to do this thing when I was anxious, if I was having trouble sleeping, I would like fly around, this is kind of weird, but whatever. I fly around and like lift the roof off of buildings and look in on everybody else's life. And you know, maybe next door there would be a kid, you know, buying a ring to propose. And then the next door there would be a, a man and a woman in a big fight. And then in the next room there would be a baby being born. And then mm. next room there would be someone taking their last breath in front of their assembled family. And in the next room, there would be a person going crazy with uh, because someone broke up with them. And I would just fly around in this imaginary way and just get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, personally. And that, you cannot, there's no sense in holding back if that is your worldview. Hmm. Super liberating. Totally liberating. And I, I wish it for everyone. I don't, I don't think... I mean, I just don't think very much matters at all. Yeah. So honestly. do you have to, you, you, you In harbor- terms of like risk or right. putting it out there Ooh, or whatever. What'll happen if you I just about, can't imagine. Like, I can't imagine. I mean, even if like today, but it, but it does occur to me, I will say that. So like we were driving over here and I did get a little nervous and I thought, I hope I don't screw this up. And then I was very quickly able to say, what if you do? What if you totally bomb it and you're way off point and he doesn't like what you're talking about and it's not a fit and they never air it and so what? Right, like, it's so a podcast. It's a day. Trust me, I'm the one who walks around thinking, like I'm like, I'm not worried about you, but I'm like, uh-huh. oh man, like she's coming over, she's written all these amazing books, what uh-huh. am I gonna talk to her about? She's already said, she's been on the Today Show. Uh-huh. You know? Like why is she coming to my house? Uh-huh. You know? Well, that's a funny thing and points to the a very true thing that can be freeing for people is that almost everyone is just worried about themselves. Yeah. So me worrying about whether I'm gonna like show up for you and you worrying about whether you're gonna show up for me is uh-huh. the absolute truth every time in every interaction and in every scenario that every person is in every day. Yeah, that's you, one thing I think about a lot. you hear yourself tell your kids that. People are self-obsessed. Yeah, They're so just your not, daughter's like worried about care. her hair right. for the prom and mm. you're like, trust me, every yeah. girl in Piedmont right now is freaking out <laughs> about their hair. Nobody is looking. I mean, as my mother uh-huh. used to say, oh, for God's sake, Kelly, who's looking at you? Mm. Which people always laugh and think that that's kind of a cold thing for her to say, but I actually found it incredibly liberating. Like, who is looking at you? Uh huh. Your mom's a character. 
total character. I was just with her for like three nights in Philly. She still lives in the house. My dad died four years ago and she still lives in the house we grew up in. She's been in this house for 50 years. Wow. She paid off the mortgage 20 years ago. Oh my goodness. It was $212 a month. And um, yeah, and she just goes to church every day. Total devout Catholic. Every day. Every day. Because as she will tell you, and as my dad would be so happy to tell you, uh, the Catholics are the only people who will show up every day. He said, lovey, I'm telling you, you don't think there's a rabbi out there who would love to talk to his congregation every day? They won't show up. Episcopalians, they're not showing up. You know, I don't even know the other religions. He's like, only the Catholics, uh, only the Catholics want to hear it every day. Well, as much as your mom is a character, I mean, your dad just seems like not only larger than life, but the just the 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 gift of his presence in your own life and how it's kind of informed your own path. Like it's it's an amazing thing. I mean, it's the best thing that could mm. has and could ever happen to me. Is being born. It, his it sounds so amazing that it makes me angry. I know that that's some people's reactions, and in <laughs> yeah. fact, when I was writing the middle place, I kept saying to my husband, like, "You gotta." help me, like if I'm overstating things, mm. and, you know, and I said, and I do think there are gonna be people here who didn't have an experience like this, who are gonna throw the book against the wall and be like, oh, for God's sake, I can't listen to this for one more minute. And and Edward, bless his heart, would say like, this is it, you completely captured him. I mean, he uh, w- was what all of us would aspire to be, which is to say, crazy present. Who's just right here with you, nowhere else. And you were the most interesting person he ever met. Like he couldn't wait. He had a hundred questions for every person standing in front of him. And he had no, in my observation, and Edward has backed me up on this, in my observation, he had no personal needs. He didn't need to be heard. He didn't need to be understood. He didn't need to be respected or honored or... He just was for you. He's just so interested in you. And then mm. when you left and the next person came, he was interested in that person. And he was very easily pleased. Like he wasn't cool. Like, you know, you say you have two girls and two boys. It'd be like, God, is that great? Two boys and two girls, four. Mm-hmm. You can play tennis. Like, you know, that would be very exciting to him. Which is to say that it was never, um, I never felt like an ounce of pressure to do anything neat to catch his eye. Like he just thought I was neat. Like no matter what. There was, it wasn't like you can do a cartwheel, you're neat, or you got an A, you're neat, or you wrote a book. Like he, the last thing on earth he needed was for me to be validated in some external way. Like my whole life was just like, lovey, you're a special kid. And then of course, you know, he's saying the same thing to my brothers. Like it's not any minute. Uh huh. And so someone tells you that, Enough. Just total unconditional love and support. And joy. joy. He liked us. Like he loved us, yes, but he also really liked us. And that feeling like someone craves your company, you know, like every time he left the house, he'd say, lovey, come with me. Come on, we're gonna run to the the grocery store. Come on, we're gonna go down to the dry cleaners. Like, come with me, they'll be nicer to me if they see you. Mm. And he wanted me to come to work. And everyone I met in his circle would say, oh, Kelly, Corey, you're Kelly, Corey. Boy, have I heard a lot about you. Uh So that gives you this feeling like that you have somebody on your side. And that I really wish for everyone that they would have this sense that there was somebody 
who was that on their side. Right. So two things. I mean, first of all, how did that kind of um, you know inform decisions that you have made as an adult about what to do professionally and how to live your life? Like having that kind of support system and that you know person who just believes in you so completely. I would imagine you know is very empowering. I mean, it's so woven into me that I don't even see it as a separate element right. well, that I would know what respond it would be like to. To not have that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I will tell you this, that I, as I was saying before, I, I am kind of moving very slowly on this book that I'm way overdue on. And it occurred to me, this is the first book I've written since he died, and I don't get to give it to him. And that is like, hmm. like just a little less... I got to find somebody to give it to that it will mean something to. And, mm-hmm. and he was that person. Mm-hmm. So it, I, I finally uncovered like the kind of the source of my ennui with it. Well, you can still give it to him in a different way. And also him being somebody who, for whom you didn't need, you know, external value, you didn't need external validation. I know, you know but it was, I mean? he, it was so much joy. I mean, he was so fun. Like he would come to all my book tour events. Like if I was within three or four states, he was in the audience. And that was really fun because my growing up, I have two older brothers and they're both great athletes and they're natural and uh, kind of everything. They're good at darts and they're good at pool and they're good at lacrosse and golf and tennis and everything else that you put in front of them, they can kind of pick it up. Um, and I wasn't. I was like the artsy fartsy kid, like making uh-huh. collages in the walk-in closet. Like I, I put all the coats on the first rack and then I would go below like my own little Narnia. And I he sold ads in magazines. So we had McCall's magazines and Good Housekeeping magazines all over our house. And I would make these super elaborate collages by myself. And I had nothing, there was nowhere to show up to like give me a round of applause uh-huh. until I was 40. And he had so much fun with it like being there and and watching it and watching me do my thing. And and that was fun for me. I mean, he's just a very contagious kind of joy. Yeah. And he's just constitutionally, he was constitutionally wired yes. to be that way. So the yes. second question is like, how does that, you know, as a parent now, do you feel like you have to inhabit that space or do you feel the pressure to, you know, uh, exude some of that, those characteristics that were so meaningful for you, for your own kids? Well, I... I am a super emotional person and I'm super transparent. So all that uh, is to the good in terms of parenting typically because it, when I'm happy, it's so clear and I'm so enthusiastic by nature. So I'm very excited about whatever they're up to. Um, but also I'm a mom and not a dad and I and I have daughters. So it's a, like a single sex relationship. And those two factors really change it for me. Like, I think that I don't, I'm not sure it's possible for a mother to be as carefree and um, full of joie de vivre mm. as it would be f- yeah. for a dad. Yeah, it's different. I mean, dads and daughters. Yeah. And, and just it's more part-time in in my life growing up, he was more part-time than my mom. And then, so it was a big, it was exciting when he came home. It was like a big moment. Right. And it was fun. Like the whole house turned on. I mean, one of the saddest things about 
losing him is being in that house and having the energy be less. Mm. And and it's very palpable. Like we mm. we play games a lot as a family, like dominoes and hearts and rummy cube is our favorite. And when we, he was loud. He, w- he had like a lot of presence and he made dumb things super fun. And now we do the things we always did with him without him. And it's quieter Yeah. and it's not as lively. And we do it and he, the, the absence is so profound, mm. in, especially in those moments. Mm. So does that make you feel sad or just reminiscent? So sad. Yeah, yeah. Well, the loss of him and the loss of your, your friend Liz really kind of inform the book and this kind of meditation on human connection. And the architecture of it is really these phrases or words that you've identified to help us kind of bridge that gap and find a way to be more connected to the people that, mm-hmm. that are meaningful to us. So let's let's talk about that a little bit. So the the it started at the dinner table with my husband because we were taught who's a man, and we were talking about the difference between saying I'm sorry and saying I was wrong. Mm. And that and I was making this um, passionate case as I want to do about the humility that is baked into I was wrong. And the other thing about I was wrong over I'm sorry, you know, as just like a superior communication is that what I think it means is that I agree with you fundamentally about sort of our shared moral code. Like that's not sort of highfalutin, but like when he said, if Ed, if I, if Edward and I get in an argument and then he says, I was wrong, I was wrong. I feel like he came around and came back to me and we're standing shoulder to shoulder again and we're seeing the world and through the same lens mm-hmm. again. Yeah, everybody has this fundamental need to be seen. And when you say I was wrong, you're seeing the world through that person's eyes. You're identifying with them completely. And you're agreeing with them yeah. about what is wrong and what is right. Like and that's I, the the little element that I hadn't really appreciated until recently, which is like, w- when you say I was wrong, you're saying, so we agree on what's right and what's wrong, and that's wrong, and we won't do that anymore. You, I won't do it to you and you won't do it to me because it's wrong. It's so hard for people to do that. I know. I've gotten really good at it. You have? Like there's a, yeah, I mean, and I've learned that through recovery and it's very empowering. And I think we have this sense that if we say that, that it's weakness or um, we're, we're opening ourselves up for attack or you know, I don't know what goes on with us psychologically well, that prevents us from being able to do that. But when you do it, like if you truly are wrong and you say it and you own up to it, like I was taught, you know, or, early and often, like if you're gonna eat crow, like eat it hot, like just, just <laughs> own it, you know? That's good. And it's the best way to heal and to connect yourself to other people and to take responsibility for your actions and make amends. And it's just the better path. It is, I think a thing I identified in myself is that part of my hesitation in saying I was wrong is if I say this, then I can't keep doing it. Mm. Yeah, that's and scary. I kind of want to keep doing yeah, it, yeah. whatever it is. Like <laughs> yeah. I, I'm kind of a selfish brat, mm. and I want, I just want to keep doing it this way. And I don't, I don't want to put gas in your car. Yeah, that's a good point. I want to have the right to drive your car like 
into the driveway and leave you with like right and make it your one fault. mile worth of gas. But if I just come in and say you're right, I was wrong, uh-huh. then you cannot do that again. Yeah, I'm sorry. It just doesn't cut it. And I'm sorry. It it's so it's so oh, overused. Even when it's, I mean, if you say it, even at its most honest iteration, it still doesn't quite cut it. But it's generally used as a sword. You know, oh, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry you feel that way. Yeah. I'm sorry that you, you know, don't like what I said or whatever it is. Yeah, it's or, like, or it's, it's really, like, I'm, I'm sorry you're mad. Yeah. That's the like, worst. Well, that's not Fuck at you. all what I'm asking for. <laughs> yeah, that is not remotely know. satisfying yeah. for me in any way. Mm. So, yeah. Um, so that was a good one. And then another one that meant a lot to me that I spent a lot of time talking about and thinking about is I don't know. And the amount of uncertainty that we are required to tolerate is astonishing. So in that chapter, I tell a story about my friend, Mary Hope, who worked on having a baby for six years. And there was, it was both hard for her to conceive and hard for her to carry. And so every now and then she'd get one cooking and then she'd lose it. And then she'd go through this whole new process and she'd go to another doctor and all these doctors are saying to her, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And then she was finally turned toward adoption. And they worked for some number of really long months, putting together the documents and the legal work and then also like the marketing brochure. Mm -hmm. So I used to take pictures. So I took pictures of her and her husband and her dog and her house and her parents, and they put together this four-page glossy, and they send it to every Christian sorority in the United States, and um, trying to be enough for some young mom to pick them in the binder. Mm-hmm. And then they got their first child, and then they waited and waited and waited, and they were back in it and trying and trying, and people were using them like they would call and say they were thinking about picking them and would they take them out to dinner? Maybe they could talk. And, you know, it's just really poor kids who it's, it's, it's almost worth it to them to tell this lie just to get like a free meal. Yeah. And then they disappear. I wouldn't be able to reach them. Why is this happening to her? I don't know. And then one Sunday where she was supposed to go to Germany that morning, she called me and said, I'm sitting in hospital holding my daughter. And some woman had picked her and I don't know why. Mm-hmm. And that led her to be this certain kind of parent that I thought was really remarkable. And, and it, it struck me then and it strikes me now that she is sort of like, I don't know who this kid is, but he does, but she does. And I'm like more than happy to follow along. And that's really different than the way I was feeling about my daughter because I was thinking like, well, I know who you are. You're like a little bit of me and you're a little bit of him. And that's a very dangerous point of view to maintain in parenting, which is to say that like, I know you, you know, and and it puts you in a different position relative to your kid. Like it creates a set of expectations that may or may not be foiled ultimately. And they're, and regardless, they're not, it's not pleasant to grow up in a side of like a bowl of expectations that you're either foiling or meeting at any given moment of any given day. And so that idea of like learning once and for all, as my friend did, 
that you don't know. You don't know who you're talking to and you don't know who's emerging in your house and you don't know this kid so well. And then reflecting on how well your parents did or didn't know you. I mean, really, my kids are uh, 16 and 17. The idea that I know them is so ludicrous. And all I need to do to remind myself of that is to think about how well my mother knew me at 17. Right. I mean, (laughs) that's just just ludicrous. Right. So... That. So when when one of your kids comes to you and opens up about something that they're going through, like how do you navigate that as a parent, even if you think you know the answer? Well, so that's, tell me more. Uh, so that's the whole crux of um, the title is that my sense, my sort of definition of love involved activism. Like I'm a lean in person. I'm, mm-hmm. I want to help you fix your problems. I want to solve things for you. I want to smooth the road. And I want to give you everything I've got. Like I have so much life experience. And then I also have so much that I've learned. And also I have so much love. Like there's nobody who loves these kids more than I do. Nobody. And there never will be. I'll be the most for sure. No question. And all of that is off limits. And all of that is problematic to the assignment of becoming a person because nothing could be more disabling to a kid than to be given the answers. Mm. And so- And it's so hard, but it's so hard to uh, hold back from that. Oh, uh, it's impossible. I mean, yeah. I, she could say like five words and I, I, it's like a game show for me. Like, I'm like, I know the answer. <laughs> right. I can solve this problem for you. And so tell me more, it comes from my friend, Tracy Tuttle, who I mentioned before, I went traveling with and she's studying to become a therapist and she's just a very wise, thoughtful person. And I have learned a lot from her over these 30 years we've been friends. And she was doing it with her kids. She was just say, tell me more, what else go on? Mm. And she was holding tight to that and it was really working for her. And she was even doing it with her husband, which I found, Mm to be sort of amusing that like what works for the kids sometimes works for the spouse as well. But it's, of course it's true. Um, and uh, so anyway, I that is the biggest thing is when they come to me, what I try so hard to do is let them work it out. And so my, I have another friend who's, a th- who's actually a therapist, her name's Arielle. And she sort of set up this idea for me between one end of the continuum is curiosity and the other end is judgment. That's a great way to look at it. And so you just want to stay as close to the curiosity end uh-huh. as possible. And then what happened? And tell me more and what else? And go on. And and really in a perfect interaction, you wouldn't say anything else. It's like inception. Because if you can definitely sort of guide that conversation through curiosity to this realization point that they have, then they can take ownership over that solution for themselves, as opposed to you kind of delivering some edict. Yes, and there's two things involved in that. One is uh, to, to deliver the edict, to solve the problem is greedy and it's wrongheaded. So chances are you are wrong about what you think the solution is because chances are you haven't asked nearly enough questions to know what the actual problem is. Like the, there's the thing, and then there's the thing behind the thing, uh-huh, and the thing behind the thing, right. and the thing behind the thing. And so if you haven't asked 10 questions, you're solving for the superficial symptom, 
and not the mm. real problem. And then the second thing is it's incredibly greedy to take that moment of satisfaction away from another person. It would be like somebody cooking all day and then you coming in and, and taking all their tools away from them and finishing off the meal. Like, right. you know, no one would do that. Or, or, you know, if your kid was playing a sport and then you ran in at the last second and shot the goal. Like, that's a terrible thing to do. It's so blatantly terrible in other scenarios, but we're doing it all the time to each other in real life, right? I'm gonna, yeah. and it's like, um, like my metaphor for the pacing of these conversations, because I, I get like energized by a problem. I'm really psyched to like figure it out with you. And then I think about um, like a jewelry box with tons of stuff all tangled up in the bottom and like what, what the appropriate pacing is for that activity is like pulling super slow and like spreading it out in mm. front of you and seeing if you can discover like the source and maybe you unclasp one and you can slide it out an inch, but then you see that's wrapping tightly around a ring and then you gotta move the ring. And then like, that's how slow I need to be in the moment when my husband or my girls start to tell me some problem is like that slow. Yeah. And that is not my nature. I tried to practice this the other day. Uh-huh. Um, my 15-year-old who you just met, Mathis, is going through some you know, type of drama with her friends. And, um, and I'm just delighted that she actually wants to talk to me about mm -hmm. anything mm -hmm. because- As you should be. You at this should be moment delighted. in her life, you know, these, are, these, these are not as regular as they once were yeah. uh, in you know, her current state of uh, evolution. Um, and I'm just like, Please tell me more. Please, you know, yeah. tell me more. Tell me more. Tell me more. And I think I ultimately kind of, I didn't like try to solve the problem for her, but I was like, well, maybe think about this. Or did you consider this? Yeah. So I feel like that might have tipped into. I probably could have asked much more questions. Maybe. maybe. <laughs> I mean, I think I, I, I empathize. I am mm -hmm. way more you than the person I'm yeah. describing. Um, but no, yeah, I think that, um, I mean, a thing I do sometimes that I feel kind of good about because I feel like it's so loving. I mean, not only do I know that it's coming from a super loving place, but I feel like if someone did that to me, I would feel like, wow, what a loving thing is that I might come back two days later and say, I was thinking about you. I was thinking about that thing you were talking about. I wonder if maybe da 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 da. Uh -huh. And to me, I coach lacrosse in the spring. I coach, I'm the assistant JV lacrosse mm, coach at wow. Piedmont High School. Yeah. And a thing that I do a lot is I'll come into practice and I'll say, Carly, come here for a second. I was thinking about your game. The next thing for you, like in the video game of your lacrosse experience, the next step for you to go from level six to level seven is you got to lower your top hand because you're not getting any whip on the ball, blah, 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 whatever, whatever little thing. But coaching and parenting are different. But the idea that someone was thinking about you after the fact, uh -huh. that they did, they weren't just so excited to dismiss your problem and go back to their own right. lives, oh, wow, like, I think is so actually, yeah. loving. Mm, that like is, if I call cool. you in two days and say, hey, Rich, remember we talking about the people you should have on your thing? I thought of somebody for you, blah, 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 blah. Like that feels really, yeah like somebody's holding you or carrying you or walking with you in a way that I would think would be comforting. Mm. But I, I don't, I mean, I really have no idea what my kids think of me, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they secretly find my advice um, wise and salient 
or if they think like she's batshit crazy <laughs> and you know the world gives her way too much credit and like don't bring that nonsense in here like i have no idea how do they feel about you writing about them so honestly well, I mean, they're teenagers, so they like basically like living inside a lampshade with mirrors all the way around. Like it's just me, 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 and more me. Uh-huh. So they don't, they're not even that aware of me as a writer. Like they're right. so in their own lives that it's not super important to them. But then every now and then there's like a little signal that maybe this means something to them. Like they, um, well, Georgia just graduated from high school and there was a little dinner for her friends and all of their families. And a couple dads got up and gave toasts and whatever. And then, and I didn't quite know what to do. And I was, I mean, I'm, I'm inclined toward a toast Uh and generally, and, and I'm Irish and that's what we do. And, um, there's a little greeny in that. There's a little greeny in that for sure. For sure. And, uh, but but also I was super feeling super emotional and I was like I think if I get up the chances of me not crying are almost zilch uh-huh. and I don't know how she's gonna feel about that like whether that's gonna be moving to her or just like God mom what is your problem and so anyway finally she looked over at me and was like are you gonna give a speech uh-huh. and I was like oh she wants she wants me to and so I popped up and I sobbed through the whole thing uh-huh. but. It was in that moment, I was like, oh, she does like this part of me, or this is not horrifying to her Mm -hmm. that I would stand in front of people and have something to say. It's interesting. I mean, my daughters just like, they don't want, like, I can't even take a photo of them. You know, (laughs) like they're constantly Snapchatting all day long selfies to their friends and keeping up their streaks and whatever it is that they do in that mysterious netherworld. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if I, you know, want to take a picture of my daughter at her 12th birthday party, it's like, yeah. That's funny. And, And so, you know, I've had to be circumspect about what I share, you know, publicly about them. And because it's, it's, it's not their, they they didn't make the decision for me to have a podcast and write books and have some kind of social media presence and respecting that is super important. Um, But I've learned. Super important. Yes. Sometimes what I do to make the right decision, (laughs) this little game I play with myself is, would this be a good opening salvo in therapy for them later? Oh, I think like, about would that they all say, the time. That's come, a, it's show a running up in joke. therapy and say, yeah. my dad was really famous and he put, put posted pictures of me without my permission and he did it for five years and I hate it. This is a running it. joke with with Mathis, like every day. Like, oh, this will be the thing that you bring up in therapy, mm-hmm. like constantly, mm-hmm. you know? And it probably will be, you right. know? And that's a that's some humble pie mm-hmm. to eat. Um, and that's okay, yeah. you know? And, and trying to do this dance around her adolescence and try to avoid stepping on those landmines is mm-hmm. like an impossible task. But yesterday I was telling you, Jaya, our younger one, our youngest had her, it was her 12th birthday. And as a parent who has, you know, helped raise boys that are now grown and out of the house and now having this 15 year old who's almost 16, 12 is just, it's such a precious, it's beautiful heaven. time where there's innocence and joy and it's simple, but you know you're inching up against right. that moment where it's gonna change. And I had this joke with Mathis um, when she was younger, like, okay, like I hear all this stuff happens when you're 13, 14, 15, <laughs> like it's not gonna happen to you, right? Like, no, daddy, you know, da, da, da. of course it happens. <laughs> so now I'm doing this with Jaya, but I was able to be so present and appreciative of 
what was happening yesterday because I know, yeah. I know these things change. Right, and that's not unlike the underpinnings of this book for me, which is I know that being here is not guaranteed. I did it, I right. saw it, I said the words, I stared right at those kids. I watched the whole thing happen. Seven years she fought this thing. And so wanting to be able to hold that, right? That you know something, but still you're gonna be mad at her like later mm -hmm. tonight. Oh yeah, it's already happened. Right, 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 right. And that's just like, like that. something to deal with. Yeah, yeah, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this. Um, yeah. Another one that I like, that I feel like we're sort of getting to anyway is Onward, mm. which for a while I had as oh well, because that's a huge thing that I say to myself all the time is, you know, like if something is a flop or if I miss something or I screw something up, that the, it, it takes me a minute, but I always find like, oh well, oh well. Mm. And then, but I, what I wanted to talk about in the chapter, the stories I wanted to tell were a little bit bigger than that, were about loss and divorce. Mm -hmm. And, um, but even my divorced friends say that there is this oh well moment that they have to say, okay, oh well, like that's what happened. Right. We tried, he cheated, we tried again, he cheated again, I left, I've been in there, like, oh well, like didn't work out. Like I can't live there forever. I can't live in the hot mess of that forever. I gotta move onward. And so then I came to onward and I felt better about it. But I do think that that's, I mean, I believe that if you cannot say that, you are fucked. Right. Well, you craft this narrative about what your life is and it becomes a victim story. Mm -hmm. And then the retelling of that time and time again becomes an entrenched identity that prevents you from growing and you know transcending that situation, mm -hmm. which in truth is just something that happened. And mm -hmm. the meaning of which is you know only that which you give it. Right, which is negotiable. The meaning yeah. is negotiable with you. You, you, you can, relitigate the meeting, right. the meaning. But I feel like so many of us, most of us are stuck in stories that don't serve us. And we really just, we live our lives reacting to, you know, these events that happened in the past to which we've attached so much importance. Yeah, yeah. I was just with my best friend from growing up, her name's Allison and she lives in New Hampshire and she's a, she's a rich role fan and an exercise enthusiast. Hey Allison. <laughs> and, uh, and we were talking about the desire to for consistency and how you want your story to have a certain shape. And so you inflate parts of it that help make it seem like kind of this inevitable path. Mm. And that it wouldn't it be so wonderful if people could tell the story of their life in the way that was more true to the kind of ridiculous unfolding of this thing where it's, I don't know, 30% of it has nothing to do with who I am right, right. now. But but I want 100% of it to take me there. I wanna cross, I wanna have this lead to that, which led to that, which led to that. Like it's like the first aid syndrome or something where you're like, well, I, I went to Stanford and got an organizational development degree uh -huh. and then that led to working at Bain and now I'm starting my own consultancy. You know, it's like, yeah. And also there were 10 other jobs in there. Like yeah. I'm constantly telling my kids about dead ends, like abject failures. Like I got 1090 on my SATs and I got into one college. Uh -huh. 
And I am so happy that I have that story to tell them that, that because I was a photographer, I was a creative director of an educational software company. I was a little entrepreneur for a couple of years, making CD-ROMs to help kids learn Shakespeare. I got oh, a master's wow. in English at night for a couple of years at San Francisco State. I worked for United Way for 10 years. Like it doesn't add up. It's not a straight line. And I want everybody to be more honest about that mm -hmm. and resist this temptation to clean up your narrative so that it um, feels more linear and logical. Yeah. Because I think we're doing each other a huge disservice when we don't share like the dead ends. Yeah. I struggle with this a lot and I'm interested in your thoughts on this as somebody who, you know, gets up on stages and, you know, sort mm -hmm. of has to recount your story. Mm -hmm. I now have this one talk that I do that's like an hour long and I've done it a million times and and I don't know that I can do it anymore. Like I get up and I tell, and I was like, is this even true? Like mm -hmm. what, where, where am I deluding myself mm -hmm. here? And, and I'm just bored of it. And mm -hmm. I don't think it's honest necessarily. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is honest. This is the facts of this is what happened right. and all of that, but there's so much more. And I feel like, um, I don't know, like I, I've become intolerant of it because I think that there is so much messiness in there and that's where the real meaning and the beauty is. Right, right. And I think as a writer, like the, you're writing about your own life and in the in the process of doing that, your life and your your writing informs who you are. Like it, I'm sure it gives you clarity. Absolutely. You can look back and like, oh, now I understand something Absolutely. that I didn't even really understand. And when I get up on stage and talk about it, it continues to reveal itself to you. And I think that's Absolutely. a really cool thing. Um, but you have to catch yourself. I know. Right? Well, like when you're just up here, oh, I've told this story a hundred times. Why am I telling this story? Why did I first tell this story? Like, is this even really important? Right. Well, I mean, there's so much pressure, either real or perceived, that's coming from the audience, right? They want yeah. something. They want something definitive. They want something with a certain shape. They want an arc. They want a little resolution. Um, and whether they really do is another question and a really important question because maybe it's you and me in the audience and the thing we'd love the most is the story that doesn't have the right shape, mm -hmm. that doesn't have a resolution. But there is this feeling that like you can't just get up there and tell them what a holy mess it's been. You got to like give them something. Like we got, it's like there's this thing called civic uplift, which is, um, I think it's a term from journalism, which is like, don't scare the people. Don't tell the people too much about like the FBI or the CIA or the Chinese government yeah. or Tiananmen Square or whatever. Like get, you can give them some of it, but you got it. You got to close that article with like a little something to keep them, to have them hold on. I mean, if people knew how corrupt or how nefarious certain things were, these institutions that we're counting on, what would become of us? I mean, yeah. what would the the civic spirit would just die? And I feel that requirement. I feel the civic uplift requirement. And I totally relate to telling a story so many times that you're not even sure it's true anymore. Like there have been times, you know, the first book, The Middle Place, was really about this cancer mm -hmm. stuff. And then it just was an excuse to really tell these stories about my dad and look at what it means to be someone's kid when you're a kid and what it means to be someone's kid when you're all grown up. That was like the real right. thing I want to talk about. But in order to 
talk about that. I had to tell this story of finding a lump in the bath with my girls and then discovering that it was cancer. Oh my God, it's stage three. Oh my God, I'm in chemotherapy a week later and losing my hair and letting the kids shave it. And, and all those beats. I mean, if you tell the same story some number of times, I don't know how many times it is. Yeah, you get You inoculated. cross over into you can't feel it anymore. Yeah. And a huge thing that I was super afraid of with Tell Me More was to lose touch with the feelings, especially about Liz and her family. And I have not yet. It's only been out for, the hardcover came out last year, the paperback just came out. Um, but that would be the saddest day. That would mm. be a terrible, terrible, terrible day. Um, and then the third thing I would say is, uh, you should totally stop giving that speech and you should totally stop doing that. <laughs> yeah. It's fine, you're done, you yeah. did it. And if they wanna see it, I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere. Yeah. And um, I don't know, I mean, it would be an incredible assignment. It would be an incredible self-assignment to say, what, as of this moment, you know, like totally up to speed to this moment and all my experiences and interactions, what is the most useful thing I could tell the world? And then how is the most useful way I could do it? That would be a great challenge. Right. Well, Cause I'm guessing it's not the thing you've been doing that you've done a hundred times. No, no, no. I mean, and you know, life goes on. It's, it's sort of like a story I've been dining out on for far too long at this point anyway. I guess, but, although I do want to like leave a little room for a thing being useful to others that is no longer no longer useful to you. Well, I think it's it's not about abandoning the story completely, but it's about finding an, another way, a unique lens on it, you know, mm -hmm. because it, it, it's like I've learned how to be vulnerable and be honest and connect with an audience and then take them on, you know, a three act journey that mm -hmm. leaves them feeling empowered and capable. Mm -hmm. um, but I've just done it in a certain way for a very long time that now feels stale, but it may not feel stale to an audience. I'm sure it does. That's the thing, right? you know, so. So is it selfish of me? Uh -huh. to, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's, then it's indulgent. Oh, I wanna, I wanna do, you know, it's like the, you know, we don't wanna hear you play the hit, you know, you, yes, you're not gonna yes, play the yes, hit, you're yeah. gonna like play your experimental jazz. Right, 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 right. Like, dude, you're Paul yeah, Simon, I know. play it. But I mean, back to you in the book. I mean, I think, you know, look, your, 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 your gift is in storytelling. And this book is sort of like a self-help book. And that it, you're weirdly. giving people like, look, these are these are certain things that you can do that you can incorporate into your life that will allow you to more deeply connect with other people. Yeah. But you do it not by here's your listicle at the end yeah, of, yeah, of, no. the, uh, of the just, chapter. It's just stories, but by but connecting like... you know people through storytelling and by sharing your innate vulnerability and like the things that you go through. Again, back to where we kind of open this. It's like this is how people are able to like see their own journey through the lens of your own personal story. I mean, it's very exciting to be an observer, like a, a, a like a fine observer. That's that's really what I think that writing has created an interest and a capacity in me to be super tuned in, mm -hmm. partially in a, um, just a very at a very practical level, like I need stories, and so I have to look for them, and then partially in this miraculous way, they're just they just pop up mm -hmm. everywhere. There's always 
It's always right there. And that's what I discover all the time. Like even just, I mean, I could make a story out of today easily, easily. Just you, the moment of like having your daughter, telling your daughter to turn off the rap music and right. you saying what's on your forehead and there's paint on her forehead. Right. Like just the idea that there's a 15 year old, while we're in here, there's a 15 year old like listening to Chance the Rapper and throwing paint all over a room. Right, like, five feet away from here. This is, a, right. that's the story. Like I, yeah. I, and so to be tuned into your surroundings in that way, that's really um, what I'm working on the most. That's mindfulness. That's presence. Mm -hmm. Presence. You know, if you're yeah. paying attention, nothing's boring. That's right. Right. That's right. That's right. And uh, yes. Uh, but that's is, a skill as well, uh, like one that you've clearly finally attuned. Well, if it's a skill, that's good news for everybody because that means it's available to be developed in all of us mm -hmm. rather than some gift from above. You know, I love those Angela Duckworth concepts about uh, growth mindset and fixed mindset. Right. And, you know, I, I completely believe that because I have written these books and because I've written so much for short form stuff for magazines that I have refined, like I'm developing a skill and I'm nurturing it and I'm giving it my 10,000 hours. Mm -hmm. And it's giving back. I mean, yeah. it's a super virtuous circle and it's just more satisfying. I mean, I'm just more, like a day has way more potential now because I'm super tuned in. Right. And then the other piece is that if you are, if you've got totally gotten over yourself and you have this sense of like, everyone's interesting, then you can really have a big day. Yeah, the world completely opens up to you. Yes, and that's really the lesson of my dad and it's also the lesson of the neighborhood project. Is mm -hmm. like you don't know who you're sitting next to. Like cool it with the thin slicing. You don't know you you don't know her. There's so much more inside the people that are right around you than you're aware of. And if you can inhabit that humility and approach things that way, as my dad did, as we do in the neighborhood project, as writers do, then you're like on the hunt. Mm. Then, you, then you have this point of view that's like, what do you have? Like, tell me more, what do you got? You gotta drop the mask and your defenses. I know. And allow yourself to be open. And, you know, we're so, we're living these crazy fast paced lives I that know, we, I hate it. we barely have time to say hello to the barista at Starbucks and I we're know. on to the next thing. And people are sort of obstacles, disposable obstacles, like in the path of us just getting through the day. Yes, and that the, the big thing I'm um, having a lot of fun with is monotasking, which is just another way of having presence. But like I have, so Liz, my friend, but also my friend Christy, uh, moves in this certain way that I have observed. Like when she's making tea, she's just making tea. And when she's sitting with you and eating a bowl of pasta, she's just eating the bowl of pasta and sitting with you. Uh-huh. And that's not true for me. Like right. I was playing We call this, that a crazy person. Right, right. I, <laughs> yeah, I was this like, person who's like totally getting off on like, right. I'm putting away laundry while talking on the phone, while like swiping dust bunnies against the baseboards of my house with my socked foot. Like right. that was that was like winning for me, was doing those three things at the same time. And that is losing. It is totally losing. Like it can be deeply satisfying to swipe the dust bunnies off your wood floor. If you could just say, I'm going to monotask now. Right now I'm just gonna yeah. do the dust bunnies. Later I'm gonna sit on the phone and talk and I'm not gonna do anything else. I'm just gonna talk to Christy on the phone. 
it's now, kind of a relief because you're like, I'm just gonna do one thing. Yeah. And yet it's also seemingly impossible. Yes, but I feel like I'm getting better at it. You are. Yes, like I can cook now. I mean, I'm not a cook. If my kids were here, they'd be like, cook, you know how to cook, um, which I don't. I'm not very good because I'm impatient. But uh, the I can like boil pasta now and just boil the pasta and like not touch my phone and not turn on the TV and not like flip through a magazine or catalog while I'm waiting for the pasta. I could just sit there. And I am trying to do this more in front of my children because this, these fucking phones are so omnipresent. It's tragic. Mm-hmm. It is tragic. I was just with Georgia yesterday. We, we had to fly all day from the East Coast to the West Coast and I was with both of them. And it was like, there's only the phone. There isn't, like I have, I, I see you have a notebook and a pen. Mm-hmm. Like I'm a notebook and a pen person myself. I like to draw my calendars and, and put the, I do them in That's hardcore. rows of four and put it in that way and like, you know, color out the travel days and put little arrows and like little clouds on people's birthdays and uh-huh. all that. And I find that the attending to that, attending to my upcoming schedule in that way by hand has this focusing effect and that you could not have on a phone. Yeah, I agree. And I have my own, you know, trials and tribulations with my relationship with my phone, but I'm, you know, I'm deeply concerned about my kids, my daughters and the way that they interact with it. And, and I often find myself at a loss as to how to effectively parent through that because I can just see it happening in front of me and on some level, like I'm on my phone too much. So, okay, I'm mirroring this behavior. I'm creating a permissive environment for it. So who am I to then erect these rules around it? And yet the the rampant sort of, you know, it's just like zero boundary relationship that mm-hmm. my 15 year old has with it leaves me like very scared. I had, a, I had this, um... I'm big on like propaganda campaigns, like parenting through propaganda. So, and I've totally been exposed now, but I, what I used to do was like say things within earshot of them. So I'd say, oh, I'd love that Margie Breyer. I mean, I just looked over at her. She's just reading her book with her feet up, no phone in sight, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. You know, like trying to lay it on really thick. And then George was like, mom, I know you're saying that because I'm sitting here and you want me to get off my phone. So I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta be sneakier. Yeah. And Way too transparent. Yeah, I know, I know. It worked for a minute. Like when they were like eight, Uh that was kind of motivating. Um, But I do think, I I wish, if I could go back in time, I would have total uh, rules. Like I would say that you can't have your phone in your bedroom. Imagine that, that would be huge. I don't know if you could hold that line though. I would say there's no phones at our dinner table, which is true. And we don't take phones when we go out. So that's good. That's the only boundary we have. And I feel I've done them a terrible disservice. Mm. We, we had a moment where we, Edward and I got together and we like ginned up our courage and we were like, we are gonna fight this war. We are gonna say at, cert, at eight o'clock every night, we put our phones to bed, one, two, three, four, and they just sleep in their little bed together. You know, remember all that? That yeah. was like somebody's big idea. That lasted like, <laughs> you know, a couple weeks. Oh my God, two nights. Yeah. <laughs> two nights. <laughs> Because Edward was like, I have to do this. I have right. to do this. I'm like, oh boy, here we go. Yep. There's the chink. 
I know. They're going to climb through it's that really hole hard. so fast. And once baby. the pattern is, you know, once the they've established a certain relationship with it to like backtrack against that is like well, another really thing I tried to do is difficult. just improve what was on their phone. So I'm I'm always showing them my I love Instagram and I love my feed because I have National Geographic and I have um I have the onion, which I think is totally hilarious. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I have this cool flow of uh, animals doing weird things, beautiful sunsets, et cetera, very, very funny onion headlines, and then some friends. And I think maybe the the effect I might have on you is to say, look, I know you're going to be on this thing forever. Why don't you put some things in front of your eyeballs that are going to make you feel differently? Mm, that's, if cute. It's just, that's cute. That's cute, Mom. <laughs> Right? You're not buying it. That well, that first of all, they that do, violates they... the tell me more rule. I know. You know what I, I mean? know. I know. I know. It's like laden with God advice and judgment. Damn God damn it! It's not easy. But you and know what? And then in Snapchat, I'm like, why? Again, you can. Everyone can laugh now. Um, cue the laughter. I'm about to expose right. like another idiotic uh, pipe dream of mine. Snapchat. It's so weird to me because for one minute I was on Snapchat so I could Snapchat with them. Uh-huh. I'm trying to like get in their line of sight. And, but then they would just, they just send a picture of themselves. Yeah. And I think, why don't you send a picture of the world you're in? Like, even if you're at the supermarket, like send me a picture of the supermarket or you're on a run, send me a picture of your run or you're with your friend, Jenny, like take a picture of you and Jenny. But Snapchat's just a series of weird pictures of yourself. So there's no information there's nothing to connect about. There's I don't know anything new about you for having seen that. It's just this like tyranny. But Kelly, the whole point is that you're not supposed to understand it. And this is part of what it means to be growing older. Oh. It's clearly a generation gap because uh-huh. I, I go through the same thing. And um and it's about streaks. You yes. know, like just like tap your it kind of well, thing. You know, have you seen the, there's people, I don't know where they are, I think it's at Apple, who were young and were engineers and were building this all around neuroscience. And they know exactly oh, yeah. how to get you hooked. And then those people got married and then they had children and then those teen- children became teenagers. And then these people were horrified at what they had done. And now they're trying to like unravel it. Yeah. But you know, total Pandora's box. The podcast that I just put up last night is with a guy called Cal Newport, who's a professor of computer science at Georgetown. And he's written, he wrote a book called Deep Work that's amazing about how to you know, sort of be productive in a distracted world. And his mm. newest book is called Digital Minimalism. And it's all about this mm-hmm. and all the science uh, and psychology and money that's been funneled into these devices to addict you and to sort of hijack your attention mm-hmm. and the downstream impact uh, of that like on how we're functioning as a society, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. a it's a pretty it's a it's a dire picture, um, but there is agency, and we just have to be more diligent about erecting boundaries between mm-hmm. these things that entice us, right? Um, and it's a weird kind of cultural phenomenon that we're in right now, where we're seeing young people embrace minimalism, not just with you know, their digital devices, but in all Ownership. regards and yeah. and people who are who are choosing experience over salary. And, mm-hmm. you know, there is a real interesting shift in not just millennials, but the, you know, the, gener- the generation behind them 
in terms of like how service oriented they are mm-hmm. and how it's impact that motivates them. And that's mm-hmm. very different from when we were kids. So despite the kind of apocalyptic, you know, sort of picture that we can paint with mm-hmm. these things, I see like a lot of, I, I get a lot of hope and inspiration from that particular type of mindset. Yeah. I mean, it's the, 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 my friend Meg works for LinkedIn and they have all this research about this generation and how much they're willing to give up in the name of pur- purpose and um, mission and deeper work. Um, but the thing I see with my kids is like, you know, there's a whole bunch of like monkey mind type thoughts where you're hopping between apps and you're yeah. watching TV and then you're looking down and you're doing everything at once. And then there's long thoughts, like long, slow thoughts, like the kinds of long, slow thoughts you have when you're reading. And so the, antidote is reading, but I think that the poison of smartphones is that they make long thought and mono thought much more difficult. Yeah. Because I think it's a skill that atrophies. You have and to I think go, you have this. Yeah, you have to go way out of your way to just be bored. And in order to do what you do, you have to have extended rumination periods. You have to be able to think and be alone with yourself and all of that. And that's very much been eroded. And when you're doing that, because you're so used to like being productive, quote unquote, and like setting them up and knocking them down and like you are with your phone, and then you switch to like a, a manuscript, the feeling of like, this is glacial progress right. is so pronounced. Yeah. I mean, if, if just it just feels like a complete waste of a day. I, mean, I know. In 20 years, like what are the books that are gonna be coming out? Right. You know? Half a page. <laughs> Andy Ward says short is the new long. Yeah, well, I hope this pendulum, you know, listen, the pendulum always swings back. Let's hope that it does. Yep. I mean, I think, you know, podcasting is an, is an antidote to that. Like, you know, who, who would have thought people would listen to two hour conversations I and know. yet they do. They and do. Because it goes back to storytelling, really, I think. And this innate hardwired need that we have to connect with other people through their testimony and their stories. And Podcasting really fills that in a world in which we've been programmed to just watch sound bites and five second interviews. Yeah. It is, you're right. It's like a leading indicator podcast. The interest in podcasts and the success of podcasts and the success of long form is like a really positive indication yeah. that there's there's a persistent need that will win the day. And I'm sure there's, there's, you know, your husband and Ev could speak to this as well in terms of the success of Medium because mm-hmm. Medium is all about long form as well. Yeah. You know. Isn't that clever how Ev Williams like started Twitter? I know. And reduced us all to 140 characters. And then he's like, that's crazy. We need space. We right. need time to think. just went completely the other uh-huh. way. Uh-huh. And I then love it him. became like a thing. Like it's interesting to reflect back on the evolution of that because we went through that period where it was all about bloggers and blogging and mm-hmm. like now nobody blogs and you know it's podcasting now for the moment and YouTube and all these other things. But if you wanna write a thoughtful long form piece, you don't have to have a blog and put it on your website and try to draw attention to you. You put it on Medium yep. where everyone else can find it. You go where the eyeballs already are. So I, I love what he's built there. Yeah, no, I'm really encouraged by Medium. Yeah. 
Well, we got to round this out here. What are we at? Oh, we're almost at two hours. Um, that's good because I have to go potty. Do you? Me too. Well, let's, should we like <laughs> take that, a, you want to take what, a break? Is that what cuts this thing off? Generally, no, you someone can, is like, uh. If you have to go to the bathroom, we just edit, we edit no, it. You want to no. go? No, no, no. But you wrap we'll it round up it and out. then I'll go. Yeah. Um, I'm not in a hurry though. Okay. We can keep talking. Yeah. Um, back to, uh, back to storytelling and back to, back to the book. I mean, what, what is it that you want people to really get out of this latest work? Well, I have this vision always when I'm writing that I want them to finish the book and like clap it together and kind of weave it and say, this was totally worth every minute. Like, I don't think it's a small thing to read a book. Mm. And I think even really thoughtful people um, don't read that many books in a year. You know, I don't know what percentage of America reads a book a month, but I bet it's not much. And so I'm asking you to do something that's quite unusual. And so I want so much for you to feel like it was like worth every minute. Now, that being said, like people tell me they read, tell me more like in an afternoon, which is awesome to think that they couldn't put it down, but it's also like, it did take three years to write. Yeah. It's a little little (laughs) funny that there's just like something to keep them company while the laundry dries. But anyway, uh, I just want them to feel like it was time well spent. The time in the pages was Uh well spent. I want them to smile a lot. Yeah. I like it when people say they got emotional. I mean, I just like it that it moved people. Um, If maybe there's like one more minute of presence and consciousness and and hereness that you would get because you read it, that would be great. I do feel like it's a very cool service to provide, to name things that are like slightly difficult to name for people. Um, You know, I like the snap your finger moment, like, yes, Mm. yes, that, that, that feels like. um, That moment of identification. Yeah. and, And like, thank you. Like, that's exactly what I was feeling. And I've been trying to say it and understand it and, and. And you like help me cross the finish line on something that's very satisfying. Mm. So any and all of that would be a win for me. On that subject of of this desire to have people kind of read it and close the book and just go, oh, yes. So good. And you tell this story, I heard you tell this story about you have in mind these two friends of yours that uh, you respect. Tracy and Doug Lane. <laughs> that you keep in mind. I do. When you're writing. They're crazy and the smart. the idea of what they would be yes. feeling when they're reading your book. Yes. So my husband uh, went to business school at Stanford with this guy, Doug Lane, and he's really bright and he's a great reader. And I think he probably reads 20 books a year and his wife is equally bright. And so I always picture them in bed and Tracy's got one of my books open and Doug looks over and says, how is it? And then I have this horrific feeling that she's going to be like, mm, it's okay. You know, like kind of like I love uh-huh. her, but, and that makes me want to work way harder. Yeah. Like, you know, there is the kind of intended reader or whatever, but if I could, and Edward, you know, I mean, I think a lot about Edward, like I'm, I mean, I do have this sense that I'm like representing him out there and I don't want to make a fool out of myself and as much for my own sake as for his, like I don't want his wife to be this ass who writes these shabby books that are, you know, she whips them off. Mm. For his own sake, you know, I want him to feel like 
he's perfectly happy to be known by this or involved in this whole enterprise. Right. And uh, so there's always a moment with every book where I say, okay, you can read it. And you have to tell me, you have to protect me. You have to say it's not ready yet. Right. Because a lot of people in the system, in the publishing system, have too much work. Yeah. And they might not say it's not ready. Yeah. They might let it go. Because they're they're working on 20 books. They yeah, gotta, and it's like a B. It's a B or a B plus. Like a B plus is good. Put like, it out there. Yeah. And then, you know, I'm a B student, to be honest. Like I didn't, I wasn't a grinder. I'm very sane, as we've discussed. Like I know that this doesn't matter on any cosmic or even microcosmic level. And so it's hard for me to get wrapped up around the axle and stay up until four in the morning, like wrestling a sentence to the ground. Uh But then I do have these like peak moments where I say to Edward or to Andy Ward at Random House, like, don't let me off easy. Yeah. Like, give me the real business. Like, make me work harder. Well, your your works are so deeply personal that, you know, the eh is like a strike through the heart. It's not like you're writing some antiseptic book about a subject matter that you research, like this is you and your life, Yeah, right? It's so personal. And so I wonder whether, um, you know, this idea of having people in mind and wanting it to be this for others, like that can be very paralyzing. Like I know for myself, like I I can't think about those things. I have to just write what feels right to me in a vacuum, like I can only be, I, I, I have to be the, the audience of it. Yes. When I start thinking about other people, I'll, I'll start you know, editing myself or being circumspect about things yeah. that, ordinarily, that I shouldn't, that don't right. serve what right. I'm trying to express. Right. Yeah, I, um, I, there's almost always somebody extremely important that a, that a book involves that I, I, I could never not be thinking about. So, and tell me more, like, you know, Liz's husband, Andy, and her kids um, were super important to nail it for. Did you let them read parts of it before it yeah, came yeah, out? Yeah, for sure, yeah. for sure. Um, but the idea that this, uh, I mean, that that's both super freeing and, um, deeply satisfying is like, maybe I just wrote it for them. Maybe mm-hmm. it's just for them. And and if it helps it be 1% less awful, then I'm, I'm done. Right. And, and it does, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I know, I know because now I've lost somebody, even though it was in totally fair time, he was an old man and, you know, was a perfect out. Um, but still, I love it when people bring him up. And so when you write a book and you put somebody's mom in there and you're talking about her over and over again, and then she's in the world. Yeah. And that's really meaningful uh, to them. So at, at some level- you can level, still deepen your own relationship with that person beyond the grave. Yes, but, oh, for sure, for sure. I mean, it, you know, mostly I think about her. I mean, mostly I think about what she was robbed of, not so much like what I, can continue to relate to mm. with her, but more just like, I can't believe you don't get to be here. I cannot believe that I am like hugging your child and you can't do it. Mm-hmm. I can't believe I'm looking at your child. Like I'm looking at this kid, her son looks so much like her and he's a whirling dervish. She never stops moving, he's super kinetic, great athlete um, and just, just never stands still. 
And every now and then when I'm with him, he stands still and we stare at each other. And he knows what I'm doing and I know what I'm doing. And maybe she knows too. But I mean, we are right. She is right there. What do you do when you get stuck? Writing? Yeah. I put it away and I go like clean cabinets. I mean, I get stuck all the time. Like it's, it's, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's more ordinary for me to be stuck than to be in flow. Like, so, um, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about talking about work and talking about the thing you're working on and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I had heard a writer say once that they never talk about it because, Part of the reward of having written is being able to finally share it and talk about it. And if you give yourself that reward prematurely, you're less motivated to complete the work. Mm. And I think there might be something like that for me, which is to say that I totally relate to you thinking, maybe I'll just podcast forever. Like, well, I write a book. Like, this is so satisfying. Uh And this right now is so satisfying for me. Like, I could do this all day long. And way more satisfying than writing. Right. Um, I'm only glad to have written. I'm almost never happy when writing. I think that that is very honest and probably the experience of most writers. I guess, right? You know, like, so I, I'm, I, I'm- It's so I'm riddled my with ha- failure. I'm, I'm, my, I'm my most happiest when I'm writing. Feels, maybe that's true for certain people. I mean, I'm a total extrovert, so, so there's no way right. I could be happy being alone. Uh-huh. So your favorite part is the book's done and now I get to go out in the world and yes. tell everyone about it. 100%, 100%, that's all I want. Yeah. I just wanna start conversations. Well, like that's what to, I like. You know, who wants to be pulling their hair out like at the kitchen table, working on one paragraph for six hours. And there's just so much failure. There's so much failure in writing. Like the, there's, the success rate is, like 5% or something, I mean, mm. it's just really, really small. It's almost nothing in my life has prepared me for this much consistent, relentless failure, which is to say like, I can read way above the level I can write. And that it's never uh, lost on me that I'm not able to achieve what say Marilyn Robinson is able to achieve or Jessamyn Ward, who I'm reading right now or Lori Moore. Um, and, you know, I have a master's in English literature. I was an English major. Like I understand the difference between literature and what mm. I'm doing. And I love what I do, you know, and I love Anne Lamott and other people who do what I do. And that, that whole genre, I think is really useful, but I know that it's not, um, I mean, if I had the IQ of like a Marilyn Robinson, if I could I mean, talk about like a person who's able to hold a slow, complex thought and like develop it. I mean, I can barely read it. I can, it's just at the edge of my intelligence level to be able to read it and process it and understand it. And so I'm always seeing that delta, which means that I'm inevitably failing at some level. And that's something to process. You got to do something with that sense of it. And you got to say, yeah, yeah, that's the feeling again. Or you like, look, it is like looking in the mirror. Like some days you look in the mirror and you're like, I'm cute. I look all right. And other days you're like, I cannot believe I've ever been kissed. Like I am (laughs) atrocious. I have age spots and wrinkles Uh, and my 
neck has dropped into a waddle and my shoulders are sloped and my belly sticks out and it's just horrific. And then the next day, you know, no, it's not bad. I'm not doing too bad. And it's just like that with your writing. Like you open it up and you think, oh, that's good. That's a good paragraph. Like the thing I read, I really like. Yeah. I still like it. And then I could have opened to another page and read it and thought, like, I cannot fucking believe I put that in print. Like, hey, I'm going to st- stuck with that forever. My name's uh-huh. attached to that shit, you know? And it's all within the same book. It's all within the same yeah. experience. It's like you might get one, one beautiful passage in, in 100 pages. And one more, something lovely, something that you would be so happy to be known by hmm. in the middle of some stuff that's good. It's good. Like, it's a B. It's definitely a B. B plus. I'm really selling the hell out of my book right now. Well, and I- yeah, but no, look, here's the thing. I mean, it depends on how you define good writing. Like, I read your book and, I'm, and, I, and I go, I can't, I can't do what she does. Like, I can't, like, the, the, the manner in which you're able to take the ordinary and the mundane and the very personal and translate it into a way that's just, it just makes you feel warm and fuzzy. Mm-hmm. It makes you feel loved. It makes you feel comfortable and at home and it makes you feel seen. Mm-hmm. And there's a gift in there, some kind of special sauce that you have that may not be uh, you know, that which these luminaries that you regard do, but they don't do what you do. Right, you right. Know? right, and that's just, Staying and, you know, yeah. that's just saying, you know, we, let's just all bring our gifts forward and see how it works out. Right. So is that the advice that you give to aspiring writers and young people that want advice from you? Yeah. I mean, one, one thing that I think is very funny and relatable is that many, many people who say, ask for advice about writing, I will say, do you write now? And they say, no. And I say, well, then my first piece of advice is you should write. The secret to writing is writing. Yeah. Like it would be like me saying like, I really want to run a marathon and you uh-huh. saying, do you run? Right. Like, no, and I don't even own running shoes. It's like, okay, well, <laughs> I know start there. I know step one for uh-huh. you, kid. Um, so I do think that there's something, there's, it's like a magical aspiration that many people hold secretly or not that they want to write a book someday. Uh, but I think many fewer people actually have the intention mm-hmm. and the and are actually taking steps in that direction. Once I know someone's taking steps in that direction, then I do think it's kind of fun to try to help them find it, right. you know, to find some kind of voice that's different and that's theirs. And I think most people are super hung up about how they sound on the page. And I feel like the goal is to sound more or less like yourself. For me, for the kind of writing yeah. I do. I mean, if I were writing a novel, it would be very different, but I'm not using voice in a specific way like that to achieve some artistic end. I'm trying to just give you give you it as I feel it, as I experience it in my voice. And the so the thing I do is just read it out loud. And if it sounds like me, if it sounds mm. like something I would almost say, you know, maybe on a really good day when I was hyper articulate, but still within the range of something I might say, uh-huh. then it can stay, then it belongs there, then it's going to be it's going to flow in your ear. And that uh, a thing that is said to me sometimes that feels very validating is, oh, you talk just like you read. You talk just like you write. Right. And I think that's good. Mm-hmm. Then, then I wasn't false and I didn't like, you know, flower it up too much and I didn't try to sound smarter than I am. And I think the, the mistake that gets made with that is that people think that means it's easier, but it's actually harder way to harder. do that. Way harder, way harder, way harder. Yeah. Because you, you gotta find some flow. Do you have like 
certain practices, like like do you keep a journal with you all the like, oh, I'm in the carpool lane and you know, Judy just said the craziest thing to me and I'm you write it down. So sometimes like, I do voice memos yeah. on my phone, which is easier for me. Um but no, I used to write in a journal. Here's a crazy thing. I had a journal that I was writing in for like seven years and I cannot find it. <laughs> and course. I have two teenage daughters. Yeah. Like, where's the journal? <laughs> Who's reading the journal? Because I mean, them? there is some shit in that journal that should not be read by my children. Because yeah. they don't have the capacity to understand mm. it. I mean, they will someday. They could read it when they have mm. children. They're more than welcome to read it. They'd laugh all day long. Right. But right now, they'd be so sensitive. Um, so yeah, uh, I don't know where the journal is. It's, um, blue, royal blue leather, yeah. pebbled, uh, journal. If anyone has it out there, I'd really like you to send it back to me <laughs> because <laughs> this is weighing on me just yeah. a little bit. Um, yeah, but no, I don't have any, uh, super strong processes. I mean, the, a thing, the, I guess the only thing I would say is I listen differently. Like I'm listening really carefully. And not only am I listening to what stories you're telling me, but I'm also listening to your response to me. So if I'm in a room with some women at a cocktail party or having coffee or whatever, and I say something and then people start to crowd around or there's like a big reaction, I definitely take note of that. Right. Like I know it's resonating. I already know it's resonating before I put it on the page because I've touched it publicly in a uh -huh. conversation somewhere. It's almost like a stand-up comedian, like working out their yes. thing, you know. Well, it's but it's more spontaneous than that. It's like it's just something to note. It's not. It's not like I go in thinking, "Oh, I'm going to try that. I'm going to tell that story about my grandmother like, and oh, see how connecting. see how they respond to it." It's more like I started telling a story about you know, so like I'll come home and say, "Dad, would like so interesting. I was telling a story about my grandmother," and like all of a sudden, like the room got really quiet and everybody was listening to me, and I thought, "Oh my god, I guess that's like a thing. I guess mm. people would really want to think right. about that." Yeah. It's like that. It's like that. Yeah. I think we did it. All right. How do you feel? Good. Yeah. Hot. And also, I know like I have we to had to pee. turn the AC <laughs> off, so it's getting warm in here. Turn it back on. <laughs> um, thank you. You're so welcome. I could talk to you all I day. I loved it. Yeah, yeah. It was really fantastic. Um, you absolutely delight me. Oh, And thanks. I am going to go back and read all your other books. Yeah. There. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited about that. Well, it'll only take you like two, so, three hours. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm a pretty slow reader. <laughs> Thank so. you for having me. Um, yeah, of course. So if you're digging on Kelly, uh, easiest way to connect with you, kellygorgon.com, Instagram. Yeah. Instagram, I like yeah. Instagram, just Kelly Corgan. Cool. And uh, are you doing any public events anywhere if people want to come and connect with you? No, not right now. All right. Well, yeah. tell me more at bookstores everywhere. Yeah. All right. Cool. Bye. Thanks. Peace. I gotta tell you, I'm quite taken by Kelly. I don't know how you guys feel, but I suspect you share my feelings. Let her know how this one landed by sharing your thoughts with her directly. You can find her on Twitter, at Corrigan Kelly. Also, don't forget to pick up a copy of her new book, Tell Me More. It's not that new, but it's been out for a little bit, but it's still kind of new. Her latest book, Tell Me More. Uh, check out her TED Talk. I'll put links to all that stuff in the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com, where you will also find copious additional resources to expand your experience of the Kelly Corrigan universe beyond the earbuds. Last chance for tickets for my live event, September 27th at the Wilshire Ebell Theater in Los Angeles, in conversation with special guest Paul Hawken. 
You can grab those remaining tickets by clicking on the appearances page on my website at richroll.com or on the posts that are pinned to the top of both my Twitter and Facebook pages. And this is your first opportunity to be among the first people to enjoy Shrimu, my wife, Julie's brand new plant-based cheese line. You can learn more about that and sign up by going to shrimu.com, S-R-I-M-U.com. If you'd like to support the work we do here on the podcast, subscribe, rate, and comment on the show on Apple Podcasts. That really helps with introducing the show to new people and making it visible. Share the show on social media, subscribe to my YouTube channel, Spotify, Google Podcasts, all that good stuff. And you can support us on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. Massive appreciation to everybody who collaborated to create this podcast adventure today. Jason Camiello for audio engineering production, show notes, interstitial music, Blake Curtis for additional duties on audio today, and also Margot Lubin, the two of them together, create the video version of the podcast on YouTube. Jessica Miranda for graphics wizardry, Allie Rogers for her beautiful portraits, DK David Kahn for advertiser relationships and theme music by Analemma. Appreciate all you guys. I love you. I can't do what I do without you guys. And I will see you back here in a couple days with a, another hotly anticipated, long-awaited conversation with the great Guru Singh. Guru Multiverse is back. That's right, Multiverse. It's no longer Guru Corner, no hard edges, just expansiveness. Guru is returning to the podcast. It's called The Seed of Infinity. And here is a taste. Until then... Live a little, love a lot. Peace, plants, namaste. Consciousness is a seed, a seed of infinity, a non-identified seed, no specific identity, but it's the vast potential that's the same as in a seed. Two oak acorns, right? Two oak seeds. You put one in a forest that's very crowded, and it will grow in a particular way to accommodate the crowd. That same seed, put it into a forest that is actually quite sparse, and it will grow to extend itself into the sparse nature of the forest. Now, one is not wrong, one is not right. They're both what they are. This is, in fact, what we're moving towards. The more we will understand, the more we study consciousness, the more that we're going to be able to get along.